0: Welcome everybody to the first installment of our weekly World War II short story. In this series, we'll delve into the gripping events which unfolded during the largest conflict in human history. Today, our focus is on a pivotal moment, the letter penned by Supreme Commander Dwight D. Eisenhower in case of the failure of Operation Overlord, the audacious Allied invasion commonly known as D-Day. In the mid-1940s, Europe's entire coastline lay under the oppressive grip of the Nazi regime. Allied forces faced a daunting challenge, how to bring a significant number of troops safely on the European continent. The answer lay in establishing a solid foothold on the coast of northwestern France, a mission codenamed Operation Overlord. At this pivotal juncture, no permanent American, British, or any other Allied presence besides the Soviets existed in Europe. And with the German forces deeply entrenched in Russian territory, General Secretary Stalin, President Roosevelt, Churchill, and world leaders across the globe were united in their desire for a Western European front but they knew this endeavor must be formidable enough to hold its own. Any half-hearted attempt would risk being thrust back into the sea, delaying the liberation of Europe. Enter General Dwight T. Eisenhower, the man entrusted with the monumental task of leading Operation Overlord. He bore the unique role of Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, which bestowed upon him the sole authority to determine when and where the invasion would unfold. The map suggests an invasion of France, but the exact location remains a closely guarded secret. Allied spies keep the Germans guessing, with Calais being the most likely target due to its proximity to England. However, Eisenhower's bold decision is to strike at Normandy, a location farther west from Calais and much less expected. The Allied forces stationed in England embarked on a masterful campaign of misinformation, weaving a complex tapestry of deception to confound their German adversaries. Among their ingenious tactics were the deployment of decoy assets, both on land and in the air, designed to thwart German intelligence efforts. One of the most notable deceptions was the creation of an impressive illusion along the English coastline it featured a multitude of fake ships and dummy tanks meticulously arranged to mimic a genuine military buildup. From the vantage point of German reconnaissance aircraft, this fake armada appeared utterly convincing, given the impression of a massive Allied force gearing up for an assault on the continent. Eisenhower's stratagem was not limited to visual trickery alone. He orchestrated a series of coded messages, radio transmissions, and fabricated reports suggesting Calais as the primary target for the impending invasion. Calais, being the closest point in France to England, seemed like the logical choice, and the Allies exploited this assumption to their advantage. The culmination of these cunning ploys was that the entire German high command, including Adolf Hitler himself, bought into the illusion. They firmly believed that the Allied thrust would land at Calais, and consequently, they marshaled the majority of their formidable forces in that region. This misdirection proved instrumental in diverting attention away from the true objective, Normandy. It was a testament to the extraordinary lengths to which Eisenhower and his team were willing to go to ensure the success of the D-Day invasion. Operation Neptune, the maritime segment of the Audacious Plan, shows the massive scale of D-Day, Picture this, a colossal armada with 6,483 vessels, ranging from landing craft, attack transports, battleships to cruisers, and destroyers, gathered on the shores of England. At the forefront of this naval juggernaut were the 4,000 landing craft, each brimming with courageous soldiers eager to step onto the shores of France and change the course of history. These crafts were the workhorses of the operation, ferrying the men who would spearhead the assault onto the unforgiving sands of Normandy. But the naval forces were not merely transport vessels. They also played a pivotal role in the prelude to the invasion. As the armada approached the French coast, warships unleashed a relentless bombardment on the Atlantic wall, the formidable network of defenses which shielded France's coastline. The thunderous roar of naval artillery reverberated through the air, sending plumes of smoke and dust into the sky as they pummeled enemy positions. It was a display of firepower which heralded the arrival of the liberators. Above the sea, in the boundless expanse of the skies, a fleet of 12,000 airplanes took to the air. Among them were 5,000 fighters, gallant aviators ready to secure evil supremacy and protect the invasion from enemy aircraft. These brave pilots would engage in dogfights, dueling amidst the clouds to ensure the safety of their comrades below. The choice of June 5th for the invasion was not arbitrary, but rather a calculated decision driven by the capricious nature of weather conditions in the English Channel. Within the narrow window between late May and mid-June, only a handful of days offered suitable weather for such a daring operation. Beyond this fleeting period, the channel's waters became a tempestuous battleground of storms and turbulent seas, rendering any large-scale naval and aerial movements treacherous, if not impossible. The meteorological constraint placed immense pressure on the Allied planners. They knew the success of Operation Overlord hinge on seizing this ephemeral opportunity. Waiting for better weather was not an option, as delay could jeopardize the entire mission. The inexorable march of time had set the stage for a climactic showdown. What made the situation even more advantageous for the Allies was the element of surprise. The Germans were caught in a web of deception spun by their adversaries. Misled by Allied war operations, German intelligence believed the invasion would occur at a later date, far removed from the early June timeframe. They were led to believe that the weather conditions during this period were far from conducive for a large-scale assault, thus alleviating some of the immediate concerns that might have triggered heightened preparations. Adding to the Allies' favorable circumstances, Field Marshal Rundstedt, the commander of German forces in the West, was notably absent from the scene at this critical juncture. He was on leave in Germany, vacationing with his family, blissfully unaware of the imminent threat posed by the Allied invasion. This absence, in part, stemmed from the miscommunication and misinformation engineered by the Allies to maintain the element of surprise. As the days drew closer to the designated date of the invasion, tensions mounted on both sides of the channel. The Allies had meticulously planned and prepared for this moment, utilizing every available resource to mask their intentions and ensure the Germans were taken off guard. The stage was set for a monumental clash of forces, where the confluence of weather, deception, and strategic brilliance would determine the fate of a continent. June 5th loomed on the horizon, the day when the Allies would seize their chance to strike a decisive blow against the Nazis, settling the wheels of liberation in motion. In a dramatic climax to this colossal undertaking, General Dwight T. Eisenhower summoned the newly formed divisions of the United States Army, the paratroopers, to execute a daring mission. Among these elite troops were the renowned 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions, famously depicted in the television series Band of Brothers. Their mission? To spearhead the invasion by deploying deep behind enemy lines under the cover of darkness on the night before D-Day. This plan required nerves of steel and an indomitable spirit. Paratroopers with an unwavering bravery would leap into the unknown, into the heart of hostile territory along the expansive French coastline. Each soldier was entrusted with a critical task, to quickly regroup and establish a foothold in enemy-held territory. Imagine the weight on General Eisenhower's shoulders as he made the decision to commit these brave men into the abyss of danger. Sending paratroopers behind enemy lines was a high state gamble, one that would prove pivotal in the success of Operation Overlord. These daring soldiers faced not only the hazards of enemy fire, but also the uncertainty of landing amidst the chaos of a battlefront. Eisenhower's burden of responsibility was immense. It extended far beyond simply ordering troops into combat. It was about making strategic decisions that would shape the course of history. He knew the paratroopers, along with the tens of thousands of other soldiers making the perilous crossing of the English Channel, were entrusted with a mission of unparalleled importance, to liberate Europe from the grip of the Nazi regime. But to everyone's surprise, some of the most daunting challenges Eisenhower faced were not on the battlefield, but within the ranks of his own coalition. As Supreme Commander, he bore the weighty responsibility of not only seeing the American forces, but also coordinating with the British, Canadians, Australians, and a host of other allied nations which rallied under the same banner. This multifaceted leadership role necessitated delicate diplomacy and strategic finesse. At the heart of his inner circle was his main deputy, General Bernard Montgomery of England, a figure known for his flamboyance and often described prima donna character. The relationship between Eisenhower and Montgomery was far from seamless. An incident that encapsulated their dynamics occurred when they first met. Montgomery, with his characteristic bluntness, demanded that Eisenhower extinguish his cigarette. It's worth noting that at the time, Eisenhower was known to smoke a staggering 100 cigarettes every single day. The clash of personalities between these two military titans set the tone for a complex working relationship. Montgomery's reputation for being notoriously stubborn and difficult to deal with was well earned. Yet in the Crucible of War, the two men had to find common ground and work together cohesively to keep the fragile alliance intact. The success of Operation Overlord hinged on their ability to overcome personal differences and focus on their shared mission. But Montgomery was not the only formidable figure in the coalition. Among the Allies, the Free French leader Charles de Gaulle also loomed large. De Gaulle was a figure as Machiavellian as he was influential. However, during the critical juncture of D-Day, he was stationed in North Africa and remained oblivious to the precise state of the invasion. His role in the Allied efforts was, to some extent, a calculated political move orchestrated by leaders like Roosevelt and Churchill. Eisenhower, although appreciative of his capabilities, found relief in not having to navigate the intricacies of dealing with the Gaul during the critical moments leading up to D-Day. Nonetheless, amidst these challenges, Eisenhower was surrounded by a cadre of remarkable leaders from his own nation, including the likes of General Omar Bradley, Chief of Staff George Marshall, and even President Franklin D. Roosevelt himself. Notably, Winston Churchill, the resolute Prime Minister of the UK, engaged in several contentious debates with Eisenhower, but ultimately respected his leadership and yielded to his strategic judgment. On the global stage, even Joseph Stalin regarded Eisenhower as a wise choice to lead the Allied effort. The eyes of the world were upon Eisenhower as he navigated the complexities of managing diverse personalities, forging unity, and making the pivotal decisions that would lead to the liberation of Europe. So to put all this in perspective, three of the world's most powerful governments, the US, England, and the Soviet Union, were all waiting on Eisenhower to make his move, as well as the whole of captive Europe and the rest of the world. Eisenhower put forth an amphibious plan which involved more men than any operation prior in human history. Every eye in Allied camps was staring at June 5th on the calendar, and when June rolled around, the plan was set. As the night of June 4th descended upon England, a profound sense of anticipation hung in the air. Paratroopers, resolute and prepared boarded their aircraft, ready to embark on a perilous journey that would carry them deep into the heart of the enemy. The fate of a continent rested on their shoulders. However, fate had its own plans that night, as a ferocious storm unleashed its fury over England and the English Channel. The gravest fear of all took shape, that the relentless storm might thwart the invasion itself. With a portion of the navy already deployed and planes taken to the skies, the die had been cast, but the Tempest threatened to tip the balance against the Allies. In the midst of this maelstrom, General Eisenhower faced a massive choice. And with a heavy heart, he made the call to declare a 24-hour postponement, a decision fraught with uncertainty and immense consequences. The fate of Overlord, poised to be the largest amphibious invasion in history, now hung in the balance. If the invasion were to proceed, it would have to be on June 6, with only a slim window of opportunity before the weather took another turbulent turn. But in a twist of fate, the Germans too were closely monitoring the weather. Believing that the storm had rendered an Allied assault impossible, they let their guard down and bunkered down to ride out the Tempest. Little did they know that the meteorological tides were about to shift. In the midst of what initially seemed like a tragic setback for Eisenhower, a glimmer of hope emerged from an unexpected source. Advanced weather technology, a new and vital tool in the Allies' arsenal, illuminated a path forward on the stormy night of June 4th. The technology, though in its infancy, offered a crucial insight. A brief calm in the storm was predicted for the following day, June 6th. This revelation was nothing short of a lifeline for the Allied forces. However, what made it even more pivotal was the fact that the Germans lacked this information. When the meteorologist unveiled a precious window of opportunity to him, a profound sense of anxiety descended upon Eisenhower. The weight of the decision he was about to make pressed heavily on his mind. As the day came, Eisenhower summoned his staff, seeking their counsel in a moment that would define the course of the war. Under much pressure, he individually turned to each of his trusted generals, posing a singular question. Should they cancel the impending assault or press forward into the unknown? The room was filled with tension as the generals deliberated. Apprehension was etched on their faces. The weight of responsibility bore heavily upon them as they considered the potential consequences of their choice. It was a moment of profound uncertainty where the future of the world teetered on a knife's edge. Amidst this apprehension, troublesome General Montgomery stepped forward and delivered words that resonated deeply with Eisenhower. He reminded Eisenhower of the extraordinary position they held, the chance to deliver a decisive blow to the Nazi empire and hasten its downfall. Montgomery's unwavering resolve and belief in the mission struck a chord with Eisenhower. In that critical instant, Eisenhower made his fateful decision. The attack was on. The die was cast, and the preparations for the invasion surged into a feverish frenzy. Generals and staff members alike scattered to their respective posts, driven by a shared sense of purpose and determination. In the midst of this flurry of activity, Eisenhower found himself symbolically alone, the weight of leadership and history squarely on his shoulders. It was likely in this moment he wrote the letter to the Americans in case the invasion failed. Quote, our landings in the Cherbourg area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Eisenhower never gave the speech. The D-Day invasion was successful, and the Allies eventually secured beachheads on all of their fronts. From June 6 until May 8, the next year, the Allied Army in the West steadily pushed their way east towards Germany until its final surrender on VE Day, May 8, 1945. The short yet profoundly impactful speech encapsulated the essence of General Eisenhower's character. He chose his words carefully, recognizing the weight they carried on that momentous occasion. He keenly felt the gravity of this responsibility, believing that the families and the nation deserved to know that it was his ultimate call to attack. In the speech's concluding sentence, Eisenhower bared his soul and exemplified the qualities of a generational leader. He shouldered the full weight of accountability for the operation, acknowledging that the bravery, courage, and fighting spirit of the common soldier could only take them so far. It was an acknowledgment of the collective sacrifice and an affirmation that the success of the mission depended on his leadership, his decisions, and his unwavering commitment to the cause. Eisenhower's words echoed through history as a testament to his leadership. They embodied the essence of a leader who not only bore the burden of command, but also accepted the consequences, both in success and failure, with a rare and profound sense of duty. His character stood as a beacon of inspiration, a reminder of the transformative power of leadership in the face of the most daunting challenges. Thank you all for listening to this short story of World War II. Stay tuned for a full-length podcast next week.